0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Sorry, there's no lead in um, I wasn't feeling good. Got in here late. Decided to do the show last minute. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. In fact, I had planned on doing this show at 6.30, or I mean 2.30 this afternoon. See what I mean? I'm all messed up. At 2.30 this afternoon, and let me get this up here. Let me get my mic here. At 2.30 this afternoon, and I got really tired, so I ended up sleeping. So I slept for three or four hours. I've been sick. I've got that crud that's going around with all the phlegm and all that stuff, and Boy, it is is—it is like ugly. Totally ugly. Look at my hat. What is going on with my hat today? Good to see you guys. My name's Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm going to try and not cough in your faces. Uh, so far, I've been able to get things to calm down. I've got my medications in here to help me out if that does happen. Um, but the corset—the coracidin does make me drowsy, which is what's been pretty much happening. Like the whole weekend. Yesterday, I spent the whole day sleeping because of the coracidin. But I'm glad to be here. Like I said, I was thinking about doing the show at 2.30 and then had some breakfast and got tired. So that was it. So I had to make a decision whether I was going to do a Best of the Night or go live. And I'm going to go live. It's the last show of 2023. And I want to go live for it. And uh, another thing I want to talk about, too, the backdrop Christmas stuff. I'm going to leave it up till the 5th of January. And then it'll come, that all comes down. I'm going to miss it. I love the holidays. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook, and most of you are, and you haven't done so already, Please feel free to hit that follow button. We're looking for to build our followers up on Facebook and YouTube. So it would be great if you did. And if you like what you hear and see tonight, please be sure to hit do that thumbs up. Happy face, hearts, all that good stuff. And leave a comment or two in the chat room. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, that puts us hot, uh, up in the FYP for Facebook. And then that means the computer sees us and it distributes us out uh, farther. Same thing with YouTube. I'm just getting hot in here. I've got a fever. Same thing with YouTube. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, be sure to do. Please be sure to do that. Check out the YouTube site, youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. We have over more than eight hundred videos sitting over there, and they're all different topics. I don't like to do the same topic all the time. You know, we're, we do this show Monday through Friday. I mean, Sunday through Friday. See what I mean? Whoa, loopy and uh, all different topics. So you can check out cryptids. You can check out um, stuff on religion. I mean, almost anything you can think of is over there. And I have them in folders now, so you can just click on the folder. If, if you like me and Nancy Matt's, if that, that's who you like to listen to, feel free to go click on her folder, and all, all her shows are there. Okay? And I'm, and I'm moving them over constantly. There's still a ton to move over. Anyway, I, I do appreciate you guys coming tonight. If you need to find us, uh, like I said, California is a big state. You know, we're 45 strong as far as our team goes. But California is this huge state, and it may take us a while to get to you. But look at my Aloha shirt. Hey, Nancy didn't realize I was wearing Aloha shirts. They're all surfing Santa. Um, California is this huge state, so you know we have a we have a west coast with oceans. We've got <clears throat> we've got the Sierra Nevada mountain range, a couple other mountain ranges. Uh, you know we got in between. There's farmland, cities like Sacramento. Uh, you know San Francisco. We got farmland. We got high desert, low desert. So it may take us a while to get to you, but we will get to you. And in the case that we can't get to you right away, we do have psychics on staff who could phone you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on in your particular situation. And in most cases, they, they can calm that energy down before we get out there. If you need to find us, you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Ghostly Events, Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S. So you can find us that way. You can find us again at YouTube at YouTube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. TikTok, we are California Haunts. Uh Twitter, I've been saying it wrong. We are Cal Haunts at Twitter. And we are Cal and we are California Haunts at Twitch. Took me a minute. See, at least I got them. I didn't think I was gonna get them. I'm really loopy. So uh that being said, um uh, I got a couple of announcements to make tomorrow will be because it's for New Year's Day, because I you know I'm tired as a distant tonight doing this. New Year's Day, we're gonna do a best of so be looking out for the best of link and then Tuesday we're gonna have a live show with me and Nancy matts she's gonna do her her predictions for 2024 and I'm also gonna start doing some product reviews uh as soon as I get my eyeballs back and that should be like Wednesday or Thursday I'm gonna start doing some product reviews of, of, of different things uh so uh you guys can look out for those as well you know my you know paranormal equipment and different things like light bright how want you want on that one I do light bright so uh on the lookout for that. Anyway, welcome and we are going to read a Sylvia Schultz book. Um, last time I read it, which was Thursday. Thursday, yeah, was Thursday night. We got into a bunch of ghost stories, which was really fun. You know, different holiday ghost stories. They're not necessarily aimed on Christmas, but they are during this time period between Christmas, you know, and into, into the winter months. That's what these stories are written for. So, you know, you might get some new year, New, new Year's Eve stories in there, you might get some different types of stories. But, uh we are gonna read, and uh, it's a very enjoyable book. We've got quite a ways to go on it. this is why i'm I'm pushing it out this next week and considering I'm not feeling good and and the fact that um you know and the fact that uh I don't have my my contacts, it's easier for me just to read at this point <laughs> instead of you know looking at the comments in the chat room and all that all right, okay, that being said, let me uh have a little bit of water here hopefully that won't like make the phlegm go crazy on me my grinch cup from karen clark awesome my eye is healing nicely so that's going to be done i can already feel that healing i'm i'm supposed to be five to ten days on that and i'm already at day five so hopefully by tuesday like maybe even tuesday i'll be able to wear contacts again so i'm excited all right, let's get this started, and I'm going to read for about an hour, and uh, if you guys have any questions during that, you know, just I'll see them flop up. Uh, let me know if the audio is working. I had an issue last week where the audio shut down for some reason, and uh, I, did the, I did the whole show with no audio. I can see myself moving, but no audio. So uh, let me know with that. Introduce yourself. I see three people watching. Introduce yourself in the chat room. I can still read that if you like. I can enlarge those, and I can talk with you guys in between or whatever. I'm just not making any promises. My nose is stuffed. No sore throat, but I do get the phlegm that I have to cough up sometimes. So I will try to turn the mic off if I get that situation where I'm having to cough up. So here we go. My old tablet. My tablet is so old, I can't even update the internet on it. That's how old it is. I'm looking again. Find a new tablet at some point. See, if I'm sorry, I have to snort up. It's all part of being sick. And the neat thing is, my four-year-old dog, um, Gypsy, is so concerned about me when I really uh, get those big coughing jags with the death rattle and all that. She gets right up on the couch, and she's right in my face. Whether I'm sleeping or not, she's she's right up in my face to wake me up to make sure I'm okay. My my uh, seven, my 17-year-old rat terrier, same thing. He was sitting up with me this, this, just a little while ago and watching me intently. As I coughed. So it's kind of cool to have have furry friends like that. My mother had one for years. And uh, she was a sweet sweet dog. Sweet dog, And she help, actually helped me take care of my mother. Took some of the load off me for me being able to sleep. Because if my mother moved or something during the night, she would bark to wake me up. So it was kind of cool to me. So now I have two of them watching me in there. So God, God bless animals, right? Okay. We did do a bunch of ghost stories last week. And hopefully there's more ghost stories in here. So here we go. And this is The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. And this book can be obtained. Excuse See you know what I mean? Sorry, I have to do that. This book can be obtained at Amazon. Okay, so here we go. This one's called Back Already? With a question mark. In the wide body of paranormal writings, there's a very specific type of ghost sighting called the crisis apparition. In this situation, the witness sees a friend or loved one who appears to be present in the room, but who could not possibly be there. Because at that very moment, they had just died or were dying. A theory for this underring event is that when someone is going through extreme physical or emotional trauma, as at the point of death, they're somehow able to send a telepathic message to someone with whom they have a strong bond. Crisis apparitions are fascinating, but sometimes they're hard to verify. Oh, and by the way, I did open up. I did open up the gift that somebody sent me of WD-40. So when I move now, you're not going to hear it. Kind of a bummer, especially with these stories. ghost stories. Okay. Crisis apparitions are fascinating, but sometimes they're hard to verify. Many times a witness who experiences a crisis apparition is alone or tells someone about their sighting after the fact. There is a famous report, though, that disproves the rule This that rule. British RAF pilot David McConnell appeared to his roommate at the exact moment he McConnell was dying. But not only did the roommate not realize McConnell was a ghost, he told several people about seeing McConnell well before he got the news of the plane crash that killed his friend. On December seventh, a lot of stuff happens on December seventh. Pearl Harbor, right? You know, Pearl Harbor. But when you hear this when you read this book, a lot of these things happened on December seventh. On December 7, 1918, McConnell had orders to fly his plane from the Scampton base in Lincolnshire to the base at Tadcaster. He left at 11.30 that morning, telling his roommate, Lieutenant Larkin, that he planned to take the train back and return to base in time for afternoon tea. At 3.25 that afternoon, Larkin was in the room he and McConnell shared, sitting in front of the stove fire and writing letters. Larkin heard a clatter in the hallway. McConnell was an energetic guy, and it was unusual to hear him coming a mile away. Larkin grinned and turned his chair to face his friend. McConnell was already halfway through the doorway. He was wearing his full flying kit, with his cap pushed back on his head. Hello, boy, McConnell called. Hello, Larkin replied. Back already. Yes, got there all right. Had a good trip, McConnell said. Well, cheerio. He banged the door shut and went off down the hallway. Larkin turned back to the book he was reading and the and the cigarette. At 3.45 there was a knock on the door. It was a tent Garner Smith looking for McConnell. All the men had plans, they planned going to go into Lincoln that evening. He's back. He just came into the room a few minutes ago, Larkin told him. Garner Smith left, still in search of McConnell. Larkin, I said Larkin, I apologize. Larkin went down to the mess hall for tea, then got dressed and went to Lincoln to join his friends. As Larkin sees, there's two different spellings so here. There's Larkin and Larkin. See, I didn't did misread it. As Larkin walked into the smoking room of the Albion Hotel, he overheard a group of officers talking in solemn tones. Larkin tried not to eavesdrop on their hushed conversation, but the words he heard made his blood run cold Tadcaster, McConnell, and crashed. This was too much for Larkin, and he, he nosed his way into the officers' conversation. They told him that just before they had left the base, they'd gotten word that David McConnell had indeed crashed in his camel while trying to fly the plane through dense fog to Tadcaster. The next morning, Larkin had a long conversation with Lieutenant Garner Smith. The other lieutenant tried to convince Larkin that somehow he'd been mistaken about seeing McConnell at 3.30 the previous afternoon. Larkin, though, was adamant. Larkin later wrote to McConnell's father, trying to explain his strange experience. He told the older McConnell that he and David had known each other for four months, but had only been roommates for about six weeks while they'd had plenty of discussions about political and social topics. Not once had they ever discussed anything remotely spiritual, let alone talked about the paranormal. In his letter, Larkin tried to explain his confusion by talking through it. Quote, I was at a loss to solve the problem. There was no disputing the fact that he had been killed whilst flying at Tancaster, presumably at 325, as we ascertained afterwards that his watch had stopped at that time. I tried to persuade myself that I had not seen him or spoken to him in this room. But I could not make myself believe otherwise. As I was undeniably awake, and his appearance, voice, manner, had all been so natural. My father talked about this when his mother came to him. Um, I believe he was in the Coast Guard at the time. And it, it had been nighttime, and he was just falling asleep, and she came into his barracks room in the Coast Guard to see him. Told you so. The hunger to know what comes after physical death can't be denied. It's why we read books like the ones you like like the one I'm reading right now. We'll all find out eventually of course but for some people the compulsion to sneak a peek behind the veil is tempting. For centuries people have been making arrangements with trusted friends or loved ones whoever dies first should come back and try to communicate with the one left behind. And if the stories are to be believed sometimes it does work. The people trying these experiments aren't crackpots. One of these curious people was Lord Henry Brougham, a British statesman who lived during the 19th century. He and his college friend Geoffrey Gardner were keenly interested in the possibility that a person's soul could survive the death of their body. So intrigued were they that the two friends drew up an agreement that whichever of them died, died first would appear to the other. They signed this compact in their own blood. They were not playing around with this. When the man, when the men graduated from college, Brougham entered the government service. Garner also got, also got a government post and was sent off to India. Over the years, the two men gradually lost touch with each other. It wasn't until many years later, when Lord Braham was traveling in Sweden, that he had caused to remember his college friend Garner. Braham and his travel companions had stopped at an inn for the night, and Braham wanted a hot bath after his day's journey. He had a nice relaxing soap, and was just about to get out, towel off, and head off to the bed. To bed when he turned his head to look around the bathroom for a towel. There, sitting on a chair, was his friend, Jeffrey Garner. Brown lunged out of the bath, tripped, and passed out. How I got out of the bath, I know not, he wrote later, but on recovering my senses, I found myself sprawling on the floor. The apparition, or whatever it was, that had taken on the likeness of Garner had disappeared. Brown was shaken by the sudden appearance of his college friend he hadn't seen in years. In his bath, no less. <clears throat> he was further shocked to discover when he returned home to England that Jeffrey Garner had died in India on December 19th, the same day brougham had seen him. Dear the- Dear Theodosia, to students of history and many Broadway fans, the name of Aaron Burr is synonymous with base-, with base treachery for his killing of Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. But fans of the musical Hamilton also known Burr as the adoring papa of Theodosia Burr. Theodosia was Aaron Burr's only child, and she and her father were devoted to each other. After the duel between Hamilton and Burr on July 11, 1804, Burr found himself on the outs politically. He left New York and knocked around for a while, and even managed to get himself accused of treason in 1807 for trying to set up an empire in Mexico. He was later acquitted, but went off to Europe in a self-imposed exile. Throughout all of this, Theodosia was Burr's staunch supporter. She married Joseph Alston, himself a politician, but she never swayed in her devotion to her father. In 1812, Burr returned to New York and immediately wrote to Theodosia to ask her to come see him, now that he was back home. Theodosia, although she wasn't in the best of health, jumped at the chance to visit her father. Earlier that year, in June, Theodosia had lost her 10-year-old son, Aaron Burr Alston, to malaria. She had been frail since the boy's birth, and it is possible she was suffering from uterine cancer. On December tenth, 1812, Joseph Alston had been elected governor of South Carolina. With the duties of his new position, he couldn't take time off to accompany Theodosia to New York. The War of 1812 was in full swing, and travel on the Atlantic was dangerous, but Theodosia was so eager to see her father, who had been away in Europe for years, that she bought passage on, on the Patriot and headed north. Soon after the ship's departure from Charleston, South Carolina, though, on December 30th, the Patriot vanished without a trace off the coast of Carolinas. Rumors swirled around Theodosia's fate. Stories flew that she had killed herself after resisting the advances of the pirate Oct- Octavie Ch- Chalvet. I got that right. Or that she had written farewell letters to her husband and her father and had put them into a champagne bottle, which she threw into the sea before being executed. Or that she had been captured <clears throat> and taken to Bermuda as a pirate's mistress. One particularly fanciful tale claimed that she had ended up in Texas on the Gulf Coast and had married an Indian chief. A clue to Theodosia's possible fate came in 1819 with the execution of, of Jean de Fargues and Robert Johnson. In an article published in the New York Advertiser, the condemned men claimed to have been crew members aboard the ill fated patriot. They said they had led a mutiny and had scuttled the ship, killing all on board. But the most solid evidence came to light in 1878 with the publication of an article in the New York Times. A fellow named Benjamin Burdick, described as a hard, rough assault, had made a deathbed confession at the poorhouse in Michigan. He told the minister's wife that he'd been a sailor on a pirate ship that had overtaken the Patriot. The minister's wife wrote up what Burdick told her and reported the the tale to the paper. "'He said there was one lady on board "'who was beautiful, appearing, intelligent, and cultivated, "'who gave her name as Mrs. Theodosia Alston. "'When her turn came to walk the fatal plank, "'she asked for a few moments' time, "'which was gruffly granted to her. "'She then returned to her berth "'and changed her apparel, "'appearing on deck in a few minutes, "'clad in pure white garments. "'And with the Bible in her hand, "'she announced that she was ready. "'She appeared as calm and composed, as if she were at home, and not a tremor crept over her frame, or a pallor overspread her features, as she walked toward the fa- toward her fate. As she was taking the fa- fatal steps, she folded her hand over her bosom and raised her eyes to heaven. She fell and sank without a murmur or sigh. This story lends credence to an oddity that turned up in Nags North Carolina, after the Civil War, a portrait owned by a woman who was quite elderly at the time. Her family, she said, had made a living by looting ships that ran around the Outer Banks. In 1813, a vessel had been attacked by pirates and drifted into the family's clutches. I have no idea what that was. Wow. Okay. Whatever that was, it went. Okay. That's creepy, isn't it? Here we're reading ghost stories. Yikes. Okay, all right. So the vessel had been attacked by pirates and drifted into the family's clutches. They found no one on board, but they did find some valuables that the pirates had overlooked, including a portrait of a dark haired pretty woman in white. Descendants of Aaron Burr noted the portrait's resemblance to Theodosia. Theodosia Burr, Alston's spirit, has a wide ranging territory. She is seen at her plantation house in South Carolina. And her spirit, at least, has finally reached her father's home in New York. One, if by land, two, if by sea, is a restaurant in Greenwich Village that is located in a carriage house once owned and operated by Aaron Burr. Theodosia has been seen floating through the restaurant wearing a long, flowing white dress. In life, she is said to have adored wearing jewelry, especially glittery earrings. Women sitting at the restaurant's bar have reported that someone invisible tends to tug on dangling earrings. Theodosia's ghost, again wearing the same flowing white dress, has also been seen near the Cape Patter's lighthouse. She appears there most often during foul weather or on foggy nights. Her ghost roams these sandy beaches because of one of history's most bizarre coincidences. In 1773, Alexander Hamilton was a passenger on a boat called the Thunderbolt when it was caught in a storm off the outer banks. The captain of the boat tried to make for shore. But there was no lighthouse to guide him. He then tried to ride out the storm off Cape of 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 Hatteras, but high waves pummeled the boat. The rocking of the ship spilled glowing coals off the one of the wooden floor of the galley, and started a fire that nearly spelled disaster for the Thunderbolt. Luckily, the fire was contained, and when the gale winds died down, the ship limped into port. After that harrowing experience, Hamilton swore that someday he'd make sure a lighthouse was built in Cape Hatteras. After the Revolutionary War, Hamilton was appointed Secretary of the Treasury. Here was his chance to make good on this promise of a decade before. He twisted arms to get a congressional appropriation for a lighthouse at Cape Hatteras. One of the arms he twisted was that of Aaron Burr. Burr was irked at Hamilton's manipulations, and his irritation only fanned the flames of so the feud between the two men. Decades later, the Patriots grew some and came not far from Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the same beacon built by Theodosia's father, Bitter Rifle. Unfortunately for Theodosia, the lighthouse did not even save her, but it could have. There's a theory that the Patriot was not attacked at sea, but rather lured to shore by pirates working on land, who showed a light at Nag's head to refuse the Patriot's captain. If the captain had followed the beacon at Cape Hatteras instead, he wouldn't have been taken in by the false light. We wouldn't have half the ghost stories we do if it weren't for the history behind them. And that's true. Um, <clears throat> I've seen a lot of stuff on the History Channel about this. Pamela, how's my sound? Can you hear me all right? Anyway, I was watching this thing on History Channel a few months back, and they talked about this, how there were these pirates that, that would be on the beaches with, with uh, lanterns luring the boats in so, so, they, so they could attack. Last Wishes. Let me get this going here. Peter seen to see what fell or when I looked on thrown. My house, like I can always tell you guys, very active with those. So someone paid me a visit. <clears throat> Last Wishes. Jim Curry knew he was dying. The old man was nearing the end of his earthly life, and he had made his peace. He lived in a small town of Holyrood on Canada's Atlantic seaboard. And he loved the land he made he made his home. Quote, When I go, Curran told his son-in-law, James Butler, I want to be buried in the new cemetery on the south side of the village. And if you don't bury me there, I'll haunt you. You won't have a moment's peace. Unquote. The headstrong old man passed away just before Christmas. His funeral was to be officiated by Father Walsh. As Butler made the final arrangements, he mentioned to Father Walsh that Curran's last wishes had included burial in the new cemetery. Quote, I'm afraid that's not possible, the priest explained. Last wishes or no, I can't in good conscience bury your father-in-law there. It hasn't been consecrated yet. We'll bury Mr. Kern in the north side cemetery. If he does come back to haunt anyone, let it be me. I'm the one responsible. Butler agreed. He wanted to honor Kern's last wishes, but he certainly didn't want his loved one buried in unconsecrated ground either. Quote, as long as he haunts you and not me, I'm fine with that, Butler said. The funeral was held on a snowy afternoon just after Christmas. Jim Curran was laid to rest in the properly consecrated Northside Cemetery. Family and friends drifted away to mourn in private, and Father Walsh and his driver, Harry, headed for home. The snow that had started to fall during the graveside service got worse, and soon Harry found the road blocked. He took what he thought was a shortcut across a frozen pond, but he was soon hopelessly lost. Three hours passed before Harry saw any familiar landmarks. Priest and driver made it home safely, but they were late, cold, and hungry by the time they got there. Harry, who was superstitious, swore that Jim Curran's ghost had led them astray. All that week, as, as Father Walsh made his rounds in the parish, he heard members of his congregation muttering that Jim Curran should have been buried in the New South Side Cemetery after all. The next Sunday, Father Walsh took to the pulpit to explain the reasons for his decision. The parishioners might have been soothed by the sermon, but Jim Curran's ghost still wasn't convinced. Late that night, Father Walsh heard a knock at his front door. He went to answer it, but there was no one on the porch. Before he could close the door, he heard footsteps come into the house, cross the floor, and go up the stairs to a bedroom on the second floor. The next day, Father Walsh had a visitor a friend of his, who was a priest in a nearby town. Without any prompting, Father O'Donnell asked about the visitor the previous night. Father Walsh denied that any visitor had shown up, but Father O'Donnell just lifted an eyebrow, daring Father Walsh to tell the truth. Three weird occurrences in just over a week were enough to convince Father Walsh. He consecrated the South Side Cemetery immediately. The first burial, of course, was a reburial of Jim. It was a reburial. Jim's current graves opened, and his body was moved to the new cemetery. Neither Father, neither Father Walsh nor anyone else ever heard from Jim Curran's ghost again. Curran was finally able to rest in peace. The York Museum Ghost The town of York, England, is incredibly ancient by American standards. Many cultures, let me see Make sure. I wonder if the audio is working, guys, because I had audio issues. Pamela, if you could tell me the audio is working, i appreciate it, or somebody that's watching. I did have audio issues the other night. The York Museum ghosts. The town of York, England, is incredibly ancient by American standards. Many cultures have put their stamp on it. Romans, Vikings, Saxons, Celts, Normans. All putting a facet on this jewel of the North. And relics of all these bygone people who lived and died in New York are housed in the New York Museum. In 1953, a haunting began at the museum that involved a book with a blue cover. It was just an ordinary book, but for one returning spirit, it seemed to hold great importance. It started out on a Sunday evening in September 1953. There was a meeting going on at the museum, so the caretaker, Mr. George Jonas, was waiting for it to be over so he could lock up the building. Jonas and his wife were downstairs. As people filed out, Jonas made a cup of tea before going upstairs for a final sweep of the building. But Mrs. Jonas said, are you sure everyone's gone? She heard footsteps above them, and listening, Mr. Jones did too. Quote, it's probably the curator. I'll go up and tell him I'll be turning the lights off soon, Jones said. Jonas said. He went up the stairs, heading for the curator's office. There was an elderly stranger in the office instead. He was in the far corner of the room, bent over as if looking for something. As Jonas came into the office, the stranger stood up, turned around, and walked right past Jonas on of the office. Pardon me, sir, but are you looking for someone? Jonas asked. The stranger, who was dressed in an old-fashioned frock coat and trousers, ignored him. The old fellow went straight across the hall through the open door to the library. Jonas followed him, turning on lights as he came into the room behind the odd stranger. I must find it. I must find it, the old gentleman muttered to himself. He crossed the library to a bookshelf and ran his finger down the spines of the books. By this time, Jonas was feeling a bit miffed at being so roundly ignored. But he thought that perhaps the old fellow was hard of hearing, or even stone deaf. Jonas walked closer to the old man. If you want to see the curator and Mr. Wilmot, I'll be glad to escort you to his house. As Jonas spoke, he reached out to touch the gentleman's shoulder to get his attention. Just before Jonas's fingers brushed the tweed of the old fellow's jacket, the man vanished. Jonas stood completely still for a few moments, while his mind tried to process the old man's sound, sudden disappearance. His gaze wandered to the floor. There was a book with a blue cover lying there, it had fallen from the old gentleman's hands as he vanished. Idly, Jonas noticed the title, Antiquities and Curiosities of the Church. Then his mind caught up with the situation. He raced down the stairs and bundled his wife out the door. Time to go. Let's go now. We need to go. The next morning, Jonas went to work at the museum as usual. His first stop was the library. The blue book was still lying on the floor where the ghost had dropped it. Jonas shook his head, so he hadn't imagined it after all. He told the museum curator the odd story. Four Sundays later, Mr. Jonas was again at the museum and the ghost returned. The spirit looked just as solid as before. Jonas later swore he looked like a very real person. But this time, the old man and, and the, the old man in a boardroom dress oh, boy, loopy, went from the office across the hall to the library and walked through the locked door to get there. This was just weird enough that Mr. Jonas decided to bring someone else with him when he worked his Sunday hours. On the fourth Sunday after that, Jonas and a friend walked into the library and heard the quiet shuffling of someone turning the pages of a book. A flash of blue caught their eyes, and the book dropped to the floor as they watched. It was the same book the old man had pulled off the shelf first time Jonas had encountered him. Enough was enough. The ghost was following a pattern of appearing every fourth Sunday, so on the fourth Sunday in December, a group of six men gathered with Mr. Jonas in the library of the York Museum. Jonas had gone to his doctor to make sure he wasn't just imagining things, and had invited the doctor to come to the library to see the manifestation for himself. Along with Jonas and his doctor were a lawyer and a reporter from the Yorkshire Union Press. Mr. James Jonas, the caretaker's brother, was also there, mostly because he thought his brother's story was complete nonsense. George Jonas took the blue book off the shelf to show it to everyone. As it turned out, the book had a business card pasted inside the front cover. Antiquities and curiosities of the church had once belonged to Alderman Edward Moore, a lawyer who collected antiques. The alderman had collapsed and died in a meeting nearly 30 years before. The old gentleman had always arrived around 7.40 p.m. Everyone in the room sat tensely watching the clock as the minutes ticked past. At exactly 7.42, a slim blue, blue book slowly slid to the edge of the bookshelf, as if drawn out by an invisible hand. It gently dropped from the shelf onto the floor, still standing upright. Everyone in the library was shocked, except for George Jonas. He was just relieved to not have been the only witness to this time. Everyone else agreed that, yes, without a doubt, There was something supernatural going on in that library every fourth Sunday. And now there was a possible identity for the ghost Alderman Muller. But not everyone welcomed the idea of a ghost in the library. Mr. Wilmot, who had held the post of curator for the past four years, was open to the idea of investigating the phenomenon further. After all, the apparition, whoever he was, had now been experienced by nine people. However, the museum was overseen by the Yorkshire philosophical society, and they roundly pooh-poohed the very thought of the paranormal. The society's chairman groused, It is too silly for words. There will be no investigation. I would not let the subject be brought up before the council of the society. I would not waste time on such tripe. Wilmot was so intense, or I'm sorry, so intense, so intense at the chairman's dismissive attitude that he handed in his, his resignation in the meantime, Jonas and his associates went ahead with the investigation. Wilman has supported. Okay, Wilman. Yeah, no period there, and it should be. Wilman has supported Jonas. Oh, okay. The investigation Woman has supported. Jonas was ill on the fourth Sunday in January, so he wasn't able to ghost on that evening. But on the next fourth Jan- Sunday, February seventh, uh, eighteen <clears throat> 1954, 12 men sat quietly in the museum's library. George Jonas was feeling much better, and he was joined by several professionals, including members of the Society for, for Cyclical Research. Ah, I know them. The man locked the door of the library to make sure they could conduct their investigation undisturbed. They got to the museum in plenty of time. They began the session at 7.15, 25 minutes before the ghost's usual arrival at 7.40. Unfortunately, the haunting seemed to have run its course. Whether Jonas's absence in January knocked the ghost off his schedule or the spirit had finally been satisfied with pulling the book off the shelf several times, we'll never know. But nothing happened. In February, save for a small wandering cold spot, so nothing happened in February except for for that cold spot that was moving around. And on March 7th, the next Sunday in the cycle, nothing happened at all. The spirit was gone, but the snark remained. During those weeks of waiting for the ghost to show up, some of the more open-minded members of the Philosophical Society started asking questions about Mr. Wilmot's resignation. A special meeting was held to inquire into the circumstances. There were, it was reported later, some bitter attacks and some strong defense. Who knew philosophers could get so worked up? The reason of the meeting was that the members of the Society voted to overwhelmingly to ask Wilmot to stay on as museum curator. Wilmot had been about to leave for another position, but he agreed to stay. Politics being what they are, this was followed by a flurry of other resignations. At its annual meeting two months later, the Yorkshire Philosophical Society had a completely new 12-member council. There was one person who was sad to see the museum ghost go. Alderman Muller's grandson heard of the ghost and realized that the description of the Edwardian gentleman fit his grandfather exactly. He was thrilled to have a ghost in the family. After the experience of December 1953, the ghost has never been seen again. But there are people who say that if you're in the New York Museum library doing research or simply reading a book, you may notice that the room seems to get unnaturally cold. Maybe the old fellow is still lurking in the library. You never know, right? A lot of library ghosts out there. Lots of them. Sip. Thank you for the likes. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. The Sea Captain's Ghost. The coast of Donegal, Ireland, is one of the most picturesque places in that country. Small islands off the coast provide a breakwater, some small some small protection from the angry storm-lash waters of the Atlantic. The islands of is- it is Shinigola and I I'm this man, For I do not speak Irish, okay, Gaelic. <laughs> Form a perfect natural harbor for passing ships to seek refuge in a storm. Around Christmas, one year in the early part of the 20th century, a small sailing ship came into the harbor to resupply. The ship had been battling her way through a prolonged storm and supplies were running low. The captain and two of his men rowed to the harbor from the ship. They barely made the trip safely. Even with the protection of the islands, the waters of the harbor were seething, boiling, were seething, boiling, cauldron of foam and it was evening by the time he landed. The islanders guided the small boats safely to shore and welcomed the three men. The captain loaded the skiff with supplies and was determined to make it back to his ship that night. The captain was a frequent visitor to the island and was well liked. The islanders begged him to stay until the fury of the storm slackened, but the captain was adamant. He and his two companions pushed off into the darkness. The next morning, the fears of the islanders had come true. In the darkness of the storm, the unfamiliar harbor and the storm rack waters had bested the small skiff. A man walking the beach, looking for salvageable items from wrecks, found the small boat that had been smashed to splinters by the pounding waves. Near it was the battered, broken body of the captain. The bodies of the other two sailors were never found. The tragedy hit the islanders hard. The island was home to just a handful of people who kept horses and cattle grazing on the tough forage there. The islanders were devastated. But despite their best efforts to convince them to stay, the captain and his companions had taken their chances on the dangerous waters. And now they were gone. The islanders felt a loss as though it had been family members who drowned. After the tragedy, the settlers drew together for companionship. Soon afterward, they began to spend their evenings together in one house in an effort to keep the loons at bay. One evening, as they sat around the fire chatting, they heard footsteps approaching the door. The walkway leading to the door was made of fine, soft sand, yet they still heard footsteps, as if someone was coming towards the house on hard-packed earth. Everyone on the island was there in the house, so they figured it must be a stranger. They all looked eagerly towards the door, ready to welcome the traveler to their fireside. The door swung open, and there stood a tall, broad, children man, the captain who had been buried just a few days previously. Each person in the room recognized him. A woman sitting in the corner said in Irish, Oh God, there's the captain. One of the men found his voice and greeted the captain in his native Irish speech saying, Come in. But the figure in the doorway simply stepped back and disappeared. The islanders rushed out into the night but they didn't find anyone in the house. The captain had vanished into the dark winter night. A few days before Christmas, 1850, a small boat dropped anchor off off James's point, near Rockland, Maine. The captain was not on board. Rumor had it that he had gone ashore for a drink, and not his first, and that the schooner's owners had fired him for his hard-drinking ways. Whatever the reason, the boat was lacking a captain. The first mate, believing strongly in the old adage, when the cat's away, the nice will play, had recently proposed to a beautiful young woman. With the captain gone, the first mate saw no reason not to enjoy the company of his bride-to-be. He invited her to stay in his cabin on the schooner for a few days. Only the mate, his young lady, and one deckhand were aboard the boat on December 22nd, when a vicious, when a vicious storm whipped up and snapped the boat's anchor, anchor cable. With only two the guy in the guide the schooner, it soon ran aground on the rocky shores near, near Al's Head. The boulders held the boat in place, so luckily it didn't sink, but it did fill with seawater. The three people aboard huddled for warmth on the deck. Waves crashed over the deck, drenching the three in freezing spray. Their clothes began to grow stiff with ice. The first mate took charge. His plan was for all three of them to roll up together in a wool blanket and lie down next to the stern rail, as far out of the wind and spray as possible. The mate knew they couldn't afford the spray altogether. I'm sorry, the mate knew they couldn't avoid the spray altogether, but he hoped it would freeze on the blanket and form a protective shell of ice around them. His plan worked, but it worked too well. The waves continued to pummel the boat all night, and the spray froze in ice more quickly than the mate had anticipated. The ice built into a suffocating layer several inches thick. By the time the sky grew grey with the dawn, the first mate and his fiancee were unconscious. The deck hand mourned his companions, but was glad to find himself alive at the end of that chilling night. He used a small knife to chip away at the ice, then smashed his way free with his hands that were bleeding from the shards of the ice. He staggered to his feet and saw that the tide had gone out. A narrow rocky bridge now connected the boulders to the shore. The winds of the storm still blew, but at least the deckhand could stumble towards dry land and salvation. He headed for the lighthouse at Owl's Head. Even though the battering storm, the light still shone. Even through the battering storm, the light still shone. Sorry about that. Even through the battering storm, the light still shone. He fixed his mind on the light and headed for it, crawling the last 50 yards on bloody hands and knees. He reached the lighthouse, and the keeper hurried him into the warmth of the house's kitchen. Shivering under a blanket, his hands wrapped tightly around a mug of hot soup. The dead cat stammered out his amazing story of survival. Let me check messages real quick. Okay. The lighthouse keeper was reluctant to go out into the storm to retrieve two corpses. But he organized a rescue party just in case. The men found the pair curled up in tight embrace and frozen in a solid block of ice. The rescuers used chisels and picks to freeze the storm victims. Everyone was sure the two were dead, but even so, they were rushed to a home near the lighthouse. In an attempt to revive them, they were stripped and placed in cool water baths. Rescuers gently massaged the cold limbs, searching for the faintest signs of life. In about two hours, the woman's eyes flooded open, and she struggled back to consciousness. An hour after that, the first mate stirred too. The two, snatched from death's icy grip, took several months to recover. But in June, the first mate and his radiant bride stood together in front of a preacher and promised to love each other, till death do its part ghost cat. The paranormal writer Jeff Ballinger is a tireless collector of weird tales. In his book Our Haunted Lives: True Life Ghost Encounters, he shares some of these wonderful stories. Susie Lehman had a beloved cat affectionately named Fat Kitty. Fat Kitty was a beloved member of the family and stayed devoted to them even after death. Susie's son was born prematurely and the spirit of Fat Kitty seemed to watch over him. Susie would see glimpses of a a shadow cat under her son's bassinet. She'd also notice that the bedspread at the foot of her bed, excuse me one second, at the foot of her bed, which was the corner of the bed closest to the bassinet, was constantly mussed, as if a cat had been sitting on it keeping watch. That kitty had one litter, and Susie kept two of the kittens, one named Calico, spent her life utterly fascinated by Christmas trees and the decorations that adorned them. One afternoon, after she'd lost Calico, Susie was in the house by herself. She happened to walk to the living room and gave the Christmas tree a looking over making sure it was just the same way, just the way she wanted it. Just then. One of the ornaments at the bottom of the tree started moving. Quote, That's what Calico always loved to do. She loved to run by and slap the ornament or lay up underneath it and slap it. I don't know what made me do this, but I looked at that ornament and I said, Calico, just leave the tree alone. And it stopped immediately. My husband saw it do the same thing. It was always one particular ornament and one particular part of the tree that she used to play with. Susie smiled, knowing that Calico was still enjoying her shiny, swinging toy. Cool. Next section, saying goodbye. Sometimes the spirits of the animals we love come back, and sometimes those spirits are given the chance to say their goodbye to us, just as people do. The French scientist, Camille Flammarion, was also an investigator of psychic phenomena. In 1912, in his scientific journal of des de Sciences S- S- psychiques, he published a story that a Mr. M. G. Grazer had shared with him. Grazer was a very solitary boy, you know, referring to study, to, referring to, study to socializing. His one companion was a Saint Bernard Bob- Bowlby, bobby probably Bobby, who was with him nearly constantly. On December 14, 1910. Bobby was with Grace's parents Grace's parents in in Switzerland, two kilometers from where Grace was. Quote, About 7.30 p.m. I heard the door in my room open and saw Bobby standing on the doorway looking unhappy. I called him to me. He didn't look up and he didn't obey my order. I called again. He came, rubbed against my legs, and lay down on the floor at my feet. I bent to stroke him, and he wasn't there. With was a sick feeling, Grazer ran to the nearest phone. He dialed the number for Bobby's veterinarian. That's when Grazer found out that Bobby had been put to sleep two minutes earlier. Wow. Next one, the death coach. On the night of December 11th, 1876, a servant of the Mac- McNamara's of County Clare in Ireland was making his evening rounds on the estate of Ennesty In the dark, he heard the rumbling of wheels on the road. The hour was very late, and the watchman knew no mortal vehicle was expected. He realized that the noise was coming from a phantom coach, a coach that, according to local legend, foretold approaching death. The servant knew that that at the appearance of the spectral coach, all the gates in his path should be opened. Then the coach would not stop at the house for a member of the family, but would only foretell the death of a relative far away. The watchman ran ahead of the spectral carriage, flinging open the gates ahead of it. Gasping for breath, hand pressed to a stitch in his side, he wrenched the through gate open with a clang and then threw himself face down on the ground next to it. The carriage rumbled through the open gates and the watchman sobbed for breath. The next day, Admiral Sir Sir Burton McNamara died in London, many miles from an SD Wow. Sir Geoffrey Walks Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex, was quite possibly the most hated man of his time. He lived in England during the tumultuous 12th century. He was a grandson of a Norman baron who fought alongside William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Geoffrey himself was no stranger to conflict. He provided a plainly dangerous game when Stephen and Matilda were jockeying for the crown of England in the 12th century. Geoffrey cheerfully accepted honors and patronage from both of the position rulers. He was accused of treason against King Stephen in 1141, but was pardoned. After this narrow brush of disaster, Sir Geoffrey became Sheriff and Justice of London, as well as Essex, Middlesex, and Hertfordshire. This gave him absolute power over the capital of England and three of his counties. Sir Geoffrey was at the top of the heap, both in wealth and in political influence, but his ascendancy also proved to be his downfall. Sir Geoffrey's ambition made him cruel. He attacked Ramsey Abbey, the fourth richest abbey in England. He evicted the monks and looted the church. He then moved himself and his men into the abbey, using it as his home base, as his home base to ransack nearby towns. For this plunder and desecration of the church property, he was excommunicated although he was later given absolution. So Geoffrey didn't only attract negative attention from the church. King Stephen, who once again had the upper hand in the power struggle, suspected Geoffrey of collaborating with Matilda. The king sent officers to arrest the Earl and take him to London. There, under threat of hanging, Geoffrey was forced to give up the Tower of London and his castles in excess. His biggest, which were his his biggest military assets. Although Sir Geoffrey was released after that tussle with the king, he was burning for revenge. He led an open revolt against Stephen, forcing the king to march against him. As part of his campaign, Geoffrey attacked Burn, Burn, Burnwell Castle, one of the fortresses built by King Stephen to defend against the traitorous Earl. The Earl's death was almost an anti the result of raw stupidity. On his part. During the siege of the castle, Sir Geoffrey removed his helm for a moment and was shot in the head by a bowman on the castle's rampart. Sir Geoffrey lingered for a few days before dying at Milden Hall in Suffolk in September 1144. Because of his excommunication, the earl was denied the Christian burial. His body was taken to London and he was buried there. So, why did Sir Geoffrey walk and he spared it? Somewhere north of London, his ghost was to be seen wandering the small village, and at Christmas time, the spook wearing spurs and a red cloak could be seen in nearby Trent Park, Cockfosters. The only connection he had with the area was that it, <clears throat> it had been a small part of his vast territory. Why haunt just one place? Well. There is another version of Sir Jeffrey's demise that can be that that can be considered when discussing his haunting. The story goes that the outlaw Earl drowned in a well in Trent Park near East Barnet. There are also whispers that the Earl hid some of the treasure he looted from Ramsey Abbey down that well, and that he's still searching for that chest of gold. This provides a handy, though not historically accurate, explanation for the haunting. Stories can get a little mixed up during the passing of 900 years. In December 1926, the ghost of Sir Geoffrey returned to East Barnet in fine form. The year before, strange things had been seen and heard in, in, in a municipal state there. In 1926, the district council decided to demolish the stable and repurpose the bricks into a new road. The road, the, the road work had barely started when reports came of Sir Geoffrey walking across the floors of an old house nearby. He was clanging his spurs on the floorboards. This phenomenon was repeated three times. At the same house, the family experienced several impatient knocks on its front door, when there was no human standing there. Then the letterbox rattled, scaring both the family and their dog. Strange noises were heard near the road, near the roadworks too, and a man walking near the haunted stables at midnight. Heard the jingle of the phantom spurs and caught a brief glimpse of an apparition wearing a red cloak. This being December, many London newspapers sent reporters to East Barnet in search of a good ghost story. But for some reason, many of the reporters wrote excited articles about the ghosts, but then denied the reports. This cast serious doubts on the haunting. This cast serious doubts on the haunting. A small group of local ghost hunters went out to East Barnet late in December, to wait for the phantom to appear. They claimed that they did see the Earl, dressed in armor, standing in the moonlight. But because of the reporter's backpedaling, no one believes them. Six years later, in December of 1932, dozens of people saw Sir Jeffrey's ghost. A ghost hunting group had done some research. The records they had to work with only went back 20 years, but in that time, the ghost had reliably appeared every six years. Older residents of East Barnett claimed that the spirit appeared as midnight approached between the full moon and the last quarter of the month of December. Armed with this information, the group went out for an investigation on Saturday, December 17, 1932. Just before the moon rose that night, the ghost hunters heard a weird noise off in the distance, a noise like the clanking of spurs. The noise came closer and closer until it was right beside the group. Then it faded. Moving away from them. The group slowly followed the sounds of clanking spurs until they got to a place at the edge of the East part of the Valley where the land was, rose a bit. There was a break in the cloud cover, and there, on a sloping rise, they saw the armored figure Sir Geoffrey in the faint moonlight. According to the group's report, the glance was a fleeting one, but very distinct, and the sight is fixed in the minds of those who saw it as plainly as if it had been revealed in midday sunlight. The ghost hunters were giddy with excitement, they hoped that the ghost would return either on St. Thomas Eve or the next Tuesday, or on Christmas Eve, both days being considered especially favorable for ghostly manifestations. Uh, St. Thomas was the apostle who doubted the existence of life after death. The group decided to hold another investigation on Christmas Eve. And they invited anyone who wanted to join them come along. Everyone met an hour before midnight on Christmas Eve. The sightseers drifted off in various directions, while the investigators and a few others moved a quarter mile south to the village. Of the village, to a small wooded bridge across Pimp Brook. This bridge connected the old church path to the road to Cockfosters. Foster's. As midnight approached, the main group at the bridge started hearing strange noises in the south. They started walking slowly towards the sounds. They followed the stream for a while, walking along <clears throat> walking along the bank, and the noises stopped. The group continued on, heading towards the nearby cemetery. Suddenly, the drawn-out howl of a dog split the night. The dog seemed to be wailing in distress. The group stopped, listening tensely, waiting for whatever would happen next. The soulful howl came again, and among the investigators. The ghosts had a generic, Rick dispelled the manifestation by turning on their flashlights. So they stood, frozen to the spot. The dog continued to keen, and soon the clanking of ghostly armor was added to the mournful song. Over there, someone yelled. They all saw the shadowy form of a headless dog fading into the mist. Legend spoke of a hound that often <coughs> often accompanied Sir Geoffrey, but no one alive had ever seen the dog's ghost. Then, the group was surrounded by the clank of armor the ghost of Sir Geoffrey stood in the moonlight for a long moment, and he too melted into the mist as they watched. History doesn't tell us if Sir Geoffrey and maybe his faithful hound appeared six years after that, but in 1938, the people of England had other things on their mind. But December mists still gather in the valley of East Barnet, and there are plenty of places for ghosts to hide. Cool. The Ghost of William Terriss. William Terriss was the Kenneth Branagh of his day, a superstar of the London theatre scene in in the 1890s. He was known for playing heroines, heroes, heroines. He was known for playing heroes in popular melodramas. Handsome, talented, he was royalty of a theatre set and played most often at the Adelphi Theatre in in the Strand. And that was where he met a violent end on the evening of December 16, 1897. Terriss made a habit of dining at the Green Room Club just off the the Strand. It was a short walk from the club to Main Lane, a narrow street behind the theater where he could get into the back door of of the Delphi. Delphi. All the leading players of the theater had a key. On December 16th, Terriss walked, as usual, from from the club to the theater, accompanied that evening by John Graves, an elderly friend of his. Chatting, Chatting away, the two men turned into a main lane. The street was dimly lit. Neither of the men noticed the figure standing across the street in the flickering shadows cast by the gaslit street, streetlights. The man stood silently, a dark-eyed figure in a black cloak, his hat pulled down over his eyes. As the two friends approached the back door, Graves told Therese to goodnight and walked on. Therese unbuttoned his frock coat and reached into his pocket for the key. As he slid the key in, into the lock, the dark figure rushed across the narrow lane and plunged a knife into Teresa's back. The knife glanced off the actor's shoulder blade, leaving a bad wound. Teresa staggered around to face his attacker, who struck twice more. The second knife blow landed high up near Teresa's spine. The third pierced the actor directly over the heart. The attack on William Teresa never should have happened. It was him, Mad Arthur, behind his back but to his face they cruelly encouraged his vanity and his dreams of fame and fortune. The trouble really started during the play that had previously run at the theater. The other big players teased Prince unmercifully, assuring him that he was destined to become one of the greatest actors of all time. They told him that William Torres himself was insanely jealous of Prince and had made sure the other actor was relegated to big parts. They even had Prince pathetically act out Therese's role as the hero of the show. They commiserated loudly with Prince, saying that Therese's role really should have gone to him. And all the while, they were laughing at him behind their hands. Prince, already unstable, was consumed by a rabid jealousy towards Therese. Therese, meanwhile, was completely unaware of the drama going on backstage. He didn't even know Prince by sight. When that play finished its run, all the big players, including Prince, were of course out of work. Prince auditioned for roles elsewhere. But never even made callbacks. He applied to the Actors Benevolent Fund for unemployment relief and he also approached other actors for handouts, including William Therese. Therese, when asked, unhesitatingly gave Prince a solid. This was on the evening of December 15th. The next day, the Actors Benevolent Fund met and turned down Prince's request for assistance. When he heard the news, Prince asked who the chairman of the committee was. Someone told him, Terry, meaning Edward Terry, comedian, but Prince heard Therese. The unbalanced Prince went to a shop and bought a sharp butcher's knife for one shilling nine pence, using the sovereign that Therese had given him. Then, at dusk, he went to Main Lane to lie in wait for William Therese. After the attack, Richard Prince simply stood there while people rushed the scene. He was not seized and arrested immediately. Meanwhile, Therese was carried in the theater, through the door he'd been about to open. He died 20 minutes later, his head cradled by his leading lady, Jessie Milward. Therese was only 41 years old. <clears throat> the impact of Therese's death was even felt miles away at his home. That evening, Tom, the actor's 17-year-old son, was playing chess with his youngest brother. Mrs. Therese sat in an armchair nearby. The family terrier dozed intently in her lap. A few minutes past eight, the exact time of the stabbing, the little dog suddenly leapt from Mrs. Harris's lap and ran circles around the room, barking frantically. Then he darted under the table and stayed there, cowering and snapping at something only he could see. The family finally managed to calm the shivering, wild eyed dog. Half an hour later, a cast member from the Police Secret Service, who had been an eyewitness to the tragedy, knocked on the door, knocked on their door with the shattering news. Teresa's son-in-law, fellow actor named Seymour Hicks, was taken to the Bow Street police station to identify Prince. Prince was raving and foaming at the mouth. He was later found guilty, but insane, and died in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum in 1937. Hicks left the police station and went to the Adelphi, where Teresa's body lay on a couch. The actor played the hero, even in death. His face was calm, and his lips curved in a slight smile. Hicks knelt by the couch to pay his respects to his father-in-law. Years later, Hicks wrote of the experience he had in the empty room. In the serenity and quiet of the room, I to this day feel sure I heard a voice say to me, Are there men living such fools as to think there is no hereafter? That night, I knew beyond all shadow of a doubt that William Therese and myself and me again. True to his word, Therese began haunting his beloved Adelphi almost immediately after his tragic death. Many actors reported hearing strange tapping noises coming from Teresa's old dressing room. But things didn't really heat up until 1928, over 30 years after the murder. Every evening, when he entered the theater by the main lane door, Teresa had been in the habit of giving Jesse Millwood's door a tap with his walking stick as he went down the corridor to his own room. It was his affectionate signal to his lady that he had arrived. In 1928, a musical comedy actress named June was using Jesse Milwa's old dressing room. It was June's practice not to leave the theater after matinee. Instead, she would have a light meal brought in from a restaurant then have a nap on the Chase Lounge <clears throat> until about 7.15 p.m. But the couch didn't provide much rest. As soon as June relaxed enough to drop off to sleep, the couch would start to vibrate, then lurch, as if someone were underneath it, kicking the bottom. Then a pale greenish light would form in front of her dressing room table mirror and disappear. June mentioned these things to Ethel Rollin, her dresser. Ethel replied that often, when June was on stage, a knock would sound on the dressing room door, a knock that sounded like someone rapping the door with a walking stick. When Ethel went to answer the door, there was never anyone there. June eventually told a theater veteran at the Delphi about the strange events. They suggested it might be William Turrisse returning to the theater he loved so much. The actors held a seance at the seance to theater to try and contact a colleague. Nothing happened during the seance, but afterwards, June was no longer troubled by the noises and lights in her room. The Delphi's historian, W.J. McQueen, Poe, wrote in 1959 that an apparition of Taris had been seen only once outside the theater. A few years before, on a Summer's Evening, a man who didn't know the story of the murder was walking on Main Lane near the theater's back door exactly where the stabbing had taken place. He saw a handsome man in old fashioned clothes coming towards him. The man passed him without a word, but his appearance was so striking that the witness turned for another look, but the man had completely vanished. The witness was sure he just hallucinated the whole thing, until historian and tell the historian told him about the murder of William Theresse, some sixty years in the past. Okay, guys, that's it for tonight. We will continue this during the week, and we're going into uh, a section called Christmas hauntings. So we'll be getting into that. But that's it for tonight. Um, I hope you guys celebrate New Year's, however you celebrate. Whether you're at home, I'm going to be at home tonight, obviously, because I'm not feeling well. But I hope you guys have a great New Year's. Eat your hors d'oeuvres. Eat your hors d'oeuvres. Eat your hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> sorry see that's what happens eat your hors d'oeuvres and stuff and enjoy your New Year's And I've, I was already online with a friend of mine in, in London who was at the uh, London Eye and filmed the fireworks and everything in London so I've, I've already seen you know, the fireworks but I'll probably stay up tonight but anyway thank you all very much for coming tomorrow again we will have a best of night um, I'm going to take the night off and try and repeat this thing completely if I can, and then Tuesday we'll be—I'll be back live with uh, Medium Nancy Math. who's going to do predictions for twenty twenty-four. All right, guys, have a great night. If you—if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. Still trying to get the word out about the show. I will see you guys live on Tuesday. Have a good one.